out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Straubs, because I recently spoke to their um, lead singer, songwriter. It's the one and only David Cousins to find out more about life, love, poetry. And also, they have a new album that's just been released on Cherry Red Records. It's titled The Magic of It All. This is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat... We start talking about the new album and um, I talk about the cover, the cover artwork which features what looks like either a sunrise, sunset with a motorcyclist on the front. It's titled The Magic of It All and when I mentioned this to David, or David as, as he's often known, uh, this was his response. David, tell us more about the album cover that's just come out. You, you've hit the nail exactly on the head. Here it is here. It is. <laughs> It's beautiful. It, it's, either, it's either the sunset at the end of uh, the, uh, one's musical career, or it's else, or it's the sunrise. Because I, you know, I'm carrying on making records, so <laughs> it's, it's, you can take it either way. You can, and also it's nice. It's an almost a nod to that world of Easy Rider and sort of the open road as well. So obviously, it's got a kind of a youthful kind of jaunt into the either the beginning of a day or sort of moving into another. Another well, into night. The new album is is I I'm still listening to it and thinking, does this sound right in a funny sort of way? Uh, because it's it's so fresh and lively and uh, light compared with some of our usual sort of almost gloomy sort of songs. It, there's a happy, joyous feeling to it, and yeah. it is the beginning of, of, of something different. Which, and considering it was made in in Cape Town, the picture was taken in South Africa, and so it's got all these lovely feelings about it. Yes, and interesting because um because obviously you've been reading lots up, you've obviously had quite an illness recently and have a, a sort of issue with your immune system, which means you have to be very careful around people and um yes ailments and bacteria and viruses. So how did you come about recording? Well, not writing but also the recording process of of this needing to also keep quite isolated well it goes back two years and my my partner uh her, her son lives in south africa in port elizabeth or now it's called quebec and she said i i'd like to go and see richard and his family do you want to come along and i said i'd love to and booked the tickets. And with six weeks to go, I thought, hmm, I wonder if I can get any shows over there. So I emailed a DJ called Shiloh Noon, who had been communicating with me for a while, and said, is there any chance you can fix me up with some shows? And about a week later, he came back with four shows and also said that South Africa's best bass player wants to play with you. I said, oh, that's, I'm fine. So I sent Scott Joubert, as his name is, a list of the songs, got over there, uh, went and did the first show entirely on my own, uh, and I didn't know whether anybody knew who the heck I was. On that first night, there were about 75 people in a small little club, the Music Kitchen in Port Elizabeth. At one table, there were four professors from the university 200 miles down the road who'd driven along, they're my biggest fans, apparently, in South Africa. And those are the sort of audience that the audience was. It was a very, you know, well-considered audience. And they listened and they loved it. And then as the shows went on, I, I linked up with Skulk. And at the end, we played to 400 people in the outdoors in Stellenbosch, which is about an hour from Cape Town. And the reaction afterwards was extraordinary. And people said... Uh, did you realise how big you were in the 1970s? And I said, no. I said, I knew that we sold records over here in South Africa because a &M kept us in touch. But I said, I had no idea we meant anything. And they said, well, yes. Um, the reason you meant something was because the album Grave New World and Bursting at the Seams were like a rallying point for the anti-apartheid movement. And so they said the part of the union itself, it was the union of anti-apartheid union. That song resonated very much anyway. And they said that the album Grave New World, 
that they identified with it as what a grave new world they were living in. And therefore, you became very much the band to go to for, to give hope for the future. And I found it incredibly flattering. And uh, I then said to Scott, well, I'd like to come back again and do some more shows. And he came back and said, well, there's a guy who wants to make a documentary about the straws and its influence around the world, especially here in South Africa. Would you consider coming over here to make a record? So I said, well, yes. So I got Blue Weaver together, who produced our last album. That, that was the one called Settlement. And off we went to South Africa and linked up with three of the best players I've ever played with. They were the basic lineup in the studio. And then the singers came in, the sax player came in, and it was like an unbelievable experience. But what made it more interesting and rewarding was the fact that it was recorded in the Academy of Sound Engineering, which is a working school for youngsters who want to learn to go into the business, either as audio engineers or as TV sound engineers, or in maybe work in the recording studio. And so we were then surrounded in the studio while we were making the album by about a dozen or so young students who sat there all the way through uh, listening to what we were doing, asking questions, actually going into the studio, setting up the drum mics, moving the mics, and learning how a recording was actually made, because most of these kids were learning from setting up and just recording stuff off their computer and putting samples in. So it was a great experience for them. In our breaks, we all went off outside and had McDonald's and chips or fries. And they all sat around with us and we discussed what music they were listening to and they asked us about our questions. So it was also not only a learning process, it was all being filmed, it'll be part of the documentary, but it was absolutely wonderful experience to have the enthusiasm of these youngsters around you while you're recording. Yes, and did it? I mean, I've, it, gone, it, I've gone up for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but is it also the case then, a bit like David Bowie, who obviously, you know, was him, <laughs> obvious thing here, David Bowie being David Bowie, but didn't have that band, but would kind of like go from one project to another with a set of different musicians for various reasons over the decades. Did it feel quite enjoyable and liberating and creative being able to play with quite a different mix of people including Blue Weaver, who obviously is probably, you know, the equivalent of your Tony Visconti or somebody like that. No, it was, but it, it was liberating um, in that our band has, has always been, we've had loads of personal changes in it over the years. The real continu uh, continuity of Straubs is the songs themselves. It's the actual songs and not necessarily who's playing them because over the years we've had apparently about 24, 25 musicians in the band. And so going with Blue was ideal because he'd had all the experience of being with the Bee Gees for seven years and playing on six number consecutive number one hits in America. So he had all that studio behind experience behind him. But also he was very well-versed in the sound of South Africa. He'd been to South Africa himself a couple of times, loved the music, and he understood much more of it than I did because he understood what the Guma rhythm is. That's G-H-O-E-M-A. And that is the sound of South Africa, especially in Cape Town. And that's the sound you'll hear out of, coming out of every bar or restaurant as you drive by it. It's just Guma sound, which is the sound of the music, the way in which they play. Yes. And this when I was playing with these musicians, it was liberating. I suddenly felt they brought whole new visions to the songs that the, the, the band that I've been working with wouldn't wouldn't have been able to do. Yes, absolutely. Did you have a bit of a, a Proustian flashback to about 1986 with Paul Simon and Graceland? Did that make you, you think, this is kind of a bit of a, a nod to that kind of world of, you know, global music and, and being in a completely different environment and, um, yeah, a different set of people. An interesting story is that what we didn't realise is that the engineer in the studio, who was the senior lecturer in audio, uh, was the young guy, Peter Perlson, who took Paul Simon round South Africa and introduced him to all the South African musicians 
and took them into the studio and recorded the clips that Paul Simon used for Graceland. Right. So we had, uh, had Peter's uh, experience in that. And he yes. was telling us about Paul Simon. He said he didn't actually record any tracks over there. He just recorded clips of the musicians playing segments of music and took it all back to America and mixed it over there. Yes. But we did it in, live in the studio. So we, we took it one step slightly further. And I don't think there have been that many musicians from the UK have gone to South Africa to make to make uh, recordings. No, and it's interesting because I know a few years ago there was a brilliant film came out about called Sugar Man about a song a singer from yes. America called Rodriguez who was who didn't know he made. It. it was a wonderful film. It it makes you warm, doesn't it? It gives you a warm heart and the warm yes. feeling. feeling. Yes, yeah, so you. It, it, it was it was a bit earlier. I think a bit earlier than us. Yes. Uh, I think he was late. Well, we, we started in the late sixties, but uh, bigger records came just after that. But he his music communicated, and he was working as a janitor in Detroit when they rediscovered him and took him over there, and he was absolutely stunned when they walked him out on on a stadium platform. There were about twelve thousand people in the audience. You couldn't yes. believe it. It was amazing. <laughs> So did you have the songs written before you went to South Africa or were there a mix of kind of half-written songs or did it, was the album, yeah, how did that process go? No, no, the, 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 the songs were sketched, if you like. Uh, I, I tend to work, put jot words down all the time. I'm working on new songs, not every day, but I, if I see a note in a newspaper, a nice headline, I'll write it down. And then gradually it begins to ferment in my head. I'll pick up a guitar, put it into a different tuning just to suit the words, and out comes a new song. Yes. It, that, it's a drawn-out process. Yeah. I had about half the album pre-written, and the rest of it evolved while we were over there. And did you and did you enjoy that process of having a, a timeline and a, and a definite sort of or deadline to sort of think, you know, we've, we've got to be a little bit more sort of, a bit more urgency than sitting at home in your own house. Well, we, we had uh, 14 days booked in the studio to make and record and re mix the album. We certainly didn't make it. Uh, we, we, were, we were recording certainly a track a day, if not two tracks a day, putting down the basic tracks. We were working very, very fast. What was interesting is that I wanted to do one song, the opening song called Ready. I wanted to do it in seven, eight time. Well, I was counting to myself, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. I had the words written, but I, I couldn't for the life of me play seven, eight time on my guitar and sing over the top of it. So when we got to the studio, the, the guys there, as we all sat around in, in a circle, and they said, okay, what's the next one? I said, well, ready. I want to do it in 7-8. They said, well, can you sing it to us? So I started to sing it, but I was singing it in 4-4. Four, four. They said, well, you're singing it in 4-4. Four, four. I said, but I can't play it in 7-8 and sing it at the same time. They said, oh, don't worry about that. They said, we're so used to playing in 7-8 time, it's, it's just absolutely natural to us. Yes. So I said, okay, well, it's in D minor. They said fine, and they said they, I said they said well we'll carry on playing while you just play with the chords around it. Once we got the the rhythm set in seven eight, then I could play my chords to it, but I still couldn't sing to it. So it's only once we put the track down with just chords, and then I sort of started to sing the, the words over the top of it. They went, oh wow, that sounds great, but it was. Uh, it was a follow-on from the previous album we did, Settlement, which had a song in 5-4. And again, that I got said to Blue Weaver, I want to do it in 5-4. And I said, I know it goes 1-2-3-1-2. One, two, one, two. And I said, well, it, it, I call it the other way around. We'll do it called Splat, Splat, 1-2-3, Splat, Splat, 1-2-3. Can you put that rhythm down? So Blue went on the computer, splat, splat, one, two, three, splat, splat, one, two, three. Then I started to sing over that, and I worked out how to sing in time with the 5-4 time, but still singing it and making it work. But when yeah. the band tried to play it over in the UK, 
they just could not get five four time at all. So I brought in that was my first introduction to Salt Goubert was to bring him in on the on the settlement album to do that song in five four. So this was a natural extension to go into seven eight. And ready, the opening track of the album is in seven eight, which you don't really notice because you listen to the words and you don't notice that the timing is actually moving ahead all the time and it's pushing it, it's driving the song. Yes. And it absolutely suited the rhythm of the song and the feel of the song. But we did have to put in some segments in 4-4, which were dropped in in the middle of it all, because it, it went on a bit too long and it became too repetitive. So we put some... But it was all worked out. It worked out in about three or four hours. Fantastic. That sort of urgency is brilliant. Because it's interesting, because it's kind of topped and tailed with a track which is Christmas Ghost which is your last track and this one was this written by John by any chance and and again changed John Ford, John Ford wrote the melody okay he wrote in, the melody in 4-4 four, four. yeah and then Bruce said I think it should be in 6-8 it will give it more he said every other Christmas song is in 4-4 four, four. you listen to them they're all in 4-4 four, four. he said we'll make this one sound different by doing it in 6-8 so right. that's in six eight, uh, but then I put the words to it, and I, I wanted to do Christmas, past, present, and future. And now there are two versions of this album, uh, distinctly different versions, although they're the same songs. There's the vinyl version, which ends on the song "Wiser Now," and when you listen to the both sides of that album and listen to it all the way through, it's got it ends with a very melancholy feeling it leaves a melancholy atmosphere but when you listen to the cd version of the record it's got two extra tracks on it which lift it and take it into a totally different perspective and leave it with a very optimistic feeling so the album has got two 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 distinctly different feels to it in my opinion Yes, and it's it's kind of your lyric writing on this is quite it's it's always been strong, but this is um it's got a lovely a kind of continuity from beginning to end, and I do I have to say there's a lot of beautiful songs on here. Everybody means something to someone is you know obviously kind of one of the highlights. Can you remember how that song came about? Yep, I'm talking to you in Sandgate near Folkestone, uh, and I live about five minutes from the sea. And one morning I walked out down to the sea, past the old castle built by Henry VIII, and walked onto the beach. And there's a row of fishermen's cottages just down on the left-hand side as you walk through the car park. And in front of one of them, there's a, a fence, and it's a piece of old driftwood carved in the shape of two fish linked together. And I looked at it, and I, looked, I thought, I've got to have a look at this close up. And I didn't want to feel the, the people who lived in the cottage to think I was being nosy trying to peer through their window, but I was looking at their fence. And I suddenly saw this small plaque on the wall, which is about the size of a CD. And it, I read it, and it had a title in it which said, Everything Means Something to Somebody Somewhere. And I thought, well, that's a good title. And I, I kept it in my head and walked back home and wrote it down on a piece of paper, picked the guitar up, and put the guitar in an open E tuning. Don't know why, I picked it up in an open E tuning, and started to play it. And I wanted to get the feel of the driftwood in it, so I mentioned driftwood in it, began to write lyrics with driftwood in it. But also, it's an area right on the bay, beautiful Sandgate Bay, it's a colossal bay, and it's notorious for the old shipwrecks that are out there. And I thought about the shipwrecks and imagined there was one particularly famous German boat that went down with with alleged sort of royalty on it. And I imagined that royalty was standing on the deck of the ship as it went down, waving their caps. And so it's got a little bit of humour in it. But then I suddenly began to think to myself, look, nobody speaks to anybody anymore. Nobody picks the phone up. Nobody writes letters anymore. Uh, nobody, you'll just communicate by email or even online. And I thought, I think I want to say something about that. And so I started to write in a very simplistic way, which is unusual for me, that everybody means something to someone. 
And um, if you're feeling lonely, feeling sorry for yourself, all of your belongings are packed up on a shelf. Maybe someone's lonesome just like you. Give them yeah. a call. They're from out of the blue. You know, I just put these words together to make a simple message. And it's resonated so well with people. They've come back. It's, it is the song which everybody's picked up on the album. Yeah, and and the and the other one is wiser now, which was kind of again, in, you know, talks about friendships as well. Was was this a song that was written in in South Africa as well, or was this one that had also been sort of a, a German? Um, sort this of... was the, this was the first song I actually wrote for the album, and I I just picked up the guitar. Uh, it was in a an open open D tuning, I think. I, 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 my tunings change all the time, song by song. And I, I, it was, it's, it really, it's a reflection on me getting into music. It's a reflection on the people I first saw on stage or on t on film. And then it becomes a little contemplative because I knew I had this condition which I've got. It's called MDS. M for mother, D for dog, C, S for sugar. And it's essentially, it's, it's bone marrow cancer. Mm. And there's no cure for it. it it's, it's incurable. And it can, it can be kept back but with drugs, but it can't be cured. But I started to become very reflective, and I realised that I couldn't go out on stage and play very much anymore. That was it. And so I became very reflective and contemplative at the end. Yes. And so the song takes you through, um, some folks say, uh, you, some folks say you left it late. Well, I did leave it late in songwriting. Uh, I didn't start till my mid-20s. Most people start when they're 18 or 19, but I didn't. I was too busy playing the banjo and <laughs> going around doing, playing bluegrass and uh, uh, blame it on a twist of fate. Well, there's a little hint of Bob Dylan in there. And the reason is that he was one of the people that gave me the, the start-up point for saying you should be writing songs. Not because I've met him, but I did go and see the first TV, two half-hour TV shows he did for the BBC right. when he sang and And I sat in the front row and I found his performance absolutely riveting. He was, was stunningly good. And not that I was, I'd written a word by then, but then I saw Donovan on the CV doing Catch the Wind, and I thought, bugger me, if Donovan can write songs, so can I. So I started to write songs. Yes. And I hadn't written a song till my, till my mid-twenties, and I start, then I took off like a rocket and writing hundreds of them. And how did you, I mean, just on that, that period, I mean, during 63, 64, you know, obviously this was kind of the explosion of pop and rock with the Beatles' first album. Then 67 <laughs> was the summer of love with psychedelia. And then, you know, the 60s progressed very optimistically yeah. until 1970, where we had the death of Morrison, Joplin, Jimi Hendrix the year before Brian Jones. I mean, how did you all, what was that period like for you at the 60s? Had, were you much more into that folk tradition at that stage? And, and well, um, what people don't know about me or for some do, if you, if, I, I did bring out my book, Exercising Ghosts, but uh, which explained a lot, is that I went to Denmark in 1967 or 68 and did, until then, well, the, the only solo tour I ever did until I did one in 2000, about five, six years ago, uh, in Denmark, just myself, going around a few uh, coffee houses and universities and a TV show. And I was interviewed by a DJ over there called Tom Brown. Now, Tom uh, was had was recommended listening for schools because he had the perfect English accent and he was doing a folk music programme and he interviewed me for it, uh, for the show. And he then, he was married to a Danish girl and then I, we kept in touch I came back to England. I did a TV show while I was over there. The Who were on. I did a banjo solo. And Pete Townsend and I exchanged phone numbers. I came back to England. I went, came back. And then Tom came back shortly afterwards with his wife and said, I've decided I'm coming back to England. And the, Denmark, the Danish radio, Denmark's radio, have asked me to do a pop music show from London 
called the London News. Will you produce a show for me? So I said, sure. And he said, well, we're working out at the BBC Radio One studios. So every Sunday for six years, from 1967 till 1973, I went in every Sunday and produced the London News for Danish radio. Now, that meant that I was sent every album that came out, every pop album, every rock album, and I had to go through and choose the music for the show. So I had an unbelievable grounding in music because I had every rock record that came out. I had Tommy when it first came out, the first Led Zeppelin album. But we were also going around doing interviews, Tom and I. We interviewed Captain Beefheart. Uh, we interviewed, uh, oh, you name them, Lonnie Donegan. We interviewed Justin Hayward. We interviewed Mark Bolan. We interviewed, uh, uh, I, you name them, we did it. Sandy Shaw. Uh, I, can yes. go, I can't go. Because they were so, we were interviewing people all the time. And so I had this incredible grounding. But also I was working in Radio 1. And John Field was in the next studio every Sunday afternoon when we were going in, when we were going in. So it's, hi, John. Hi, Dave. How's it going? And I hadn't made a record then. Right. I hadn't even started recording. So my grounding was before I even started recording was radio. So I knew all about editing and how to do that. I was very capable at that. And so I, I learned a lot about that, editing interviews as well. And so I taught myself never to go err uh, and um because I, I'd edited so many ears and arms out of Mary Hopkin. Every other word was, and then uh, I did this, uh, and then uh, I did this, and then we... Uh, and having edited all those lot out, I taught myself that you never say it. You take a little pause instead, like this, and then you carry on. So it's those are all the little techniques that I learned. Yes. But then I started to record. And the first album that we made... Well, I was influenced very much by the, I loved the Bee Gees' first album when that came out. I played it, but so you'll find that there's an echo of the Bee Gees on our Straw's first album. You'll find there's lots of echoes in there of rock music because I'd heard it all be, all before, and so I, I knew what I was doing. When we got in the studio, we'd already been doing BBC radio shows for a long time as the Strawberry Hill Boys. So when we came to make a record. I was already well versed with studio recording. Yes, absolutely, and and obviously you you were already doing John Peel's Top Gear in in the early seventies as as well. Well, so that, just... that was the beginning of, of when we began to move on because the first album came out when we were an acoustic trio, and we'd done a song called The Battle on it, uh, and we were invited in to do John Peel's Top Gear. Tony Visconti was produced uh, well; he arranged the album. Said you need you can't go and do it without having uh, you need uh, a keyboard player. So he said, "I've got the ideal person. It's a young guy. He's just arrived from New York. I'll bring him into the studio." So he turned up at the BBC studios and brought Rick Wakeman with him. Rick had long blonde hair down to his back, down his back. Uh, read the score up, played the battle beautifully. John Field loved it and played it the second week running in succession because he got such an enormous response for it. And Rick Waitman and I exchanged phone numbers. When we made the second album, Dragonfly, we had a song called The Vision of the Lady of the Lake. And Tony Visconti, who was producing the album, said, we've got to get a keyboard player in. So I said, well, I'll give Rick a ring. I called Rick in. He played beautifully again. The album came out. I, put, I had Rick's address. I sent him a copy of the album. I put... Thanks to Rick Wakeman for playing piano on the vision of the Lady of the Lake. And Rick wrote me a letter back and said, Dear Dave, thanks ever so much. I love the record. And thanks for putting my name on it. It's the first time I've ever had my name on a record sleeve. Yes. And, that, and that, was, that was the beginning of Rick Wakeman's recording career. Well, it was an and, interesting time, wasn't it? Because you're obviously working with Rick, who worked with David Bowie, and Tony Visconti, who would work with Mark Boland and then David Bowie. So... You were definitely mixing in some very creative circles at this stage. Well, David Bowie we knew well because we invited us over to play his Beckenham Arts Lab and I was running the Hounslow Arts Lab and so I invited him back over to do our one. Yes. He did it twice, actually. He did it once as David Bowie on the same week that uh, Ground Control to Major Tom came out and then he did it with David Bowie and Hype. And they did one of their first shows in a small room, back room in the White Bear pub in Hounslow. 
and and we we remain friends. And Tony Visconti, I still communicate with. In fact, but again, there's lots of stuff that people don't realise. We had our 50th anniversary Straub's show in Lakewood, New Jersey, with a 32-piece orchestra conducted by Tony Visconti. And we also had the United Nations singers as the grand finale singing Lay Down with the Straubs and another song as well and doing their own little show as well. Fantastic. So it was a big finale. Yes, we absolutely. Eric Brazilian of the Hooters came and played guitar with us. It was an astonishing weekend. What a celebration. That was fantastic. Did the early 70s at that stage, as you were getting your second, third album, was it a difficult one to navigate kind of musically in what direction you wanted to head in? Because, you know, the 60s, you know, had finished on a bit of a down. And then the 70s, well, we had... I, I We started out as the Strawberry Hill Boys. And we were for our first session on BBC Radio was actually was David Cousins and Anthony Hooper. Then we became the Strawberry Hill Boys, and the BBC were perfectly happy and were very, very supportive. Even as we turned into Straubs, they were very, very well behind us. Um, but I was very conscious of the fact that we had a folk audience, and I didn't want to upset them. So when we made the album from the Witchwood. Despite the fact it was our first album proper with a bass and drums with Richard Hudson and and John Ford, I was very conscious about keeping the drums and bass mixed down. And so you'll notice that it's a they're distinctly quieter. Even on Grave New World, the drums and bass were not as as advanced as as they were in other rock records, because I was still conscious of the fact that we had a folk following and I still didn't want to upset them. No, we don't want to do that at all. People get very precious, don't you? Because it was interesting, because I know people like Rod Stewart were doing, you know, various, like, solo stuff and band stuff. You you brought out a solo album quite early on in your musical, you know, career, didn't you, in the early 70s? Yeah. Was that, was were you just kind of, was just music kind of coming out from every direction and you just, and it didn't no, fit? It was, it was arguments within the band is that, when Part of the Union became a monster hit, uh, Hud and John said, well, look, we want to do short songs like that. We don't want to do your long bloody songs. You know, you know, we're, this is more commercial. And so I had a song called Blue Angel, which I had written, which it was in three segments. And I played it to them and they said, oh, we don't want to do that. So I said, well, to hell with that. I'll go and make an album on my own. So it was more aggravation than having wanting to make a, a solo album. Yes. More, I have got these songs I want to get out, and they don't particularly want to do them, so I'll do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> love that, don't we? That's always good. And losing Rick, was that a blow for you, or did it was it kind of also a blessing that you, you, you met Blue Weaver at that stage? It, it was obvious at the time that we weren't going to hold Rick. Um, David Bowie's... Uh, Tony DeVries, manager, came up to me one day and said, we're going to have your keyboard player. I said, no, you're not, because I already knew that he was rehearsing with Yes. And so while we were making the Witchwood album, I knew that Rick was making Yes. Um, with, with Yes, Rick making the, the first album he played with them. Was it close to the edge? I can't remember now. But anyway, you, if you look at the timelines on the sleeves, you'll see that it was absolutely impossible the timelines that the yes said that they'd been been uh, made it in a month or something, because I knew that we'd been making from the Witchwood for two months, and all the time he'd been going off and doing it with them without him realizing that we knew that he was doing it. People just kept telling me, yes. but then, and I, it was inevitable he would go, and so I was disappointed. The only the thing which disappointed me more was that Rick went to tell our management that he was leaving the band and he didn't phone me up and tell me. Right. And that I was disappointed with. But then a year later, when I made two weeks last summer, the album, he came, I gave him a ring and said, do you want to come and play on it? He said, yes, please. And he came and he played the most beautiful piano. And I still tell him it's the best piano he ever played on record. Yes, this is true. Did you... um? 
I was just going to say, were you influenced by, because people were really quite experimental during that period. There was the incredible string band. There was bands like Comus, you know, a lot of quite interesting rock, folk, prog kind of combinations. Did did you ever sort of feel anything was possible at that stage? And, and that kind of conflict with writing the three minute pop song as well, kind of occasionally clashed in the studio in, in sort of in rehearsals. No, I I well, I heard first of all the incredible string band in Denmark. I can still remember sitting down and listening to it, the first album. I thought, what the hell is this? It didn't appeal to me at all. Uh, the, I did enjoy hearing First Boy I Loved when it later came out when Judy Collins did the f- uh, First Boy I Loved and taking it from First Girl I Loved. And I went back and listened to that and I really admired it then. But I wasn't influenced by that. The band that influenced me most was the Young Tradition, and I really loved their harmonies. And I also loved the Waltersons, and I loved those earthy harmonies, and I incorporated that into Where Is This Dream of Your Youth, those harmonies, into into our first album. Uh, which again was people weren't doing very much, but not putting the rock rhythm to them. And that album on that particular track, we had John Paul Jones playing bass and uh, Nicky Hopkins on piano. Wow, it's a combination. <laughs> that is that's just amazing. And that that was our straw of making our first album. Yeah. Incredible stuff, actually. And working, I mean, how does it kind of work when you think, right, you know, Sandy Denny? Because you did Who Knows Where the Time Goes as well, didn't you? Yes, we did. We we recorded that in 1967, the album. We recorded it in Copenhagen. Uh, Sandy, I went down to the Troubadour Folk Club and there she was singing in a long white dress she had on and a white hat and playing a Gibson Hummingbird guitar. I'm actually, as I'm looking at you now, I'm actually looking at, I could see Sandy Denny now in, in not in you, but I, I can, I was yes. that close and I can still bring back memories of her doing it. And afterwards, I went up to her because we were quite well known at the time as the, as the Straubs because of all our radio shows that we'd done. And our, our first one, our first uh, radio, BBC radio show was Saturday Club with the Beatles, with <laughs> David Cousins and, and Anthony Hooper and the Beatles, which was quite something to do. And so people began to take much more notice of the Strawberry Hill Boys when we started to do all these radio shows. And so we were well known. And I went up to Sandy after she'd finished playing and said, I really enjoyed that. Can I introduce myself? She said, yes, who are you? I said, Dave Cousins. She said, oh. She said, are you in some kind of group? I said, yes, Straubs. She said, Strawberry, Strawberry Hill Boys. She said, oh, yeah, mm, yeah. I said, do you want to join a group? She went, yeah, all right. <laughs> I said, well, can we fix up a rehearsal then? She said, yeah, how about next Wednesday? So I said, okay. So I then phoned Tony Hooper up and said, we've got a girl singer. And we went round and we went there at seven o'clock in uh, in the evening and at seven o'clock in the morning, we were still singing. It was one of those magical experiences that just seemed to happen. Yes. And I was very influenced at the time I was listening to the Mamas and the Papas. Loved it. Ba-da-da-da-da-da. So that's where our, that came from, that On My Way song came from. Right. Then the trouble was that we that, that we made the recording for Sonic Records in Copenhagen, but they didn't have a UK distribution. So it was my job to go around find, trying to find somebody to put the album out. It took six months, by which time Sandy had had a call from Fairport Convention and went off and joined them. Yes. So the album didn't come out. But when it did come out, at the time of Part of the Union being a monster hit, it sold 65,000 copies. So, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people have got that record. Yeah, absolutely. That was, you know, a masterpiece. Deep Cuts is the, the first album you did, I believe, without, you know, after you left A&M Records. Was that a big kind of moment for you and and that release was that did that feel quite a nerve-wracking experience no it was a very disappointing experience if the truth is known because i didn't want to leave a&m and jerry moss took me out to lunch and said we don't want you to go we're just about to break you really big and we don't want you to go 
And I said, Jerry, I can't do anything about it, I'm afraid, because they've got my publishing and I, they they control what I do, the management. And so I had no alternative other than to leave. It was a financial decision. We were being paid uh, when we first started $30,000 an album. It went up to about eighty dollars or $90,000 an album to make albums. But by that time, uh, they came, uh, the Deep Purple crew came along and the Deep Purple connection went back to two weeks last summer, the album Two Weeks Last Summer, when I got Roger Glover of Deep Purple to come and play bass on it. And <laughs> so they started their own label and wanted us on the label. And they offered a quarter of a million dollars advance to make an album. And the management said, we've got to accept it. Oh, that is a, that is one of those tricky moments, isn't it? That is, yes. Did that did was that your biggest bruise in the music business at that stage? It, it was the biggest hurt because of the album that we gave to A and M before it. I, I, a very tricky story in making deep cuts. I had a lumbar puncture because it, uh, I kept getting dreadful migraine and headaches, and I had a lumbar puncture at the London clinic. Uh, to see whether I had a brain tumour. Had it happened, I didn't. But after a lumbar puncture, you, you're dizzy for two or three weeks. And I had to go in the studio and sing my vocals, lying on the floor of the studio, singing deep cuts. It was not the easiest way to record an album. I had to sing a couple of lines, then lie down and recover, then sit up again and do the next couple of lines. So that album has some... Although it's the best sounding album we ever made, uh, it was a very difficult and it wasn't a particularly enjoyable experience to make. No, my goodness. During that period, obviously, you know, the music fashion, and I found, you know, every three to five years there's a new wave of 16, 18-year-olds that come along who obviously are kind of driving things quite a bit at that stage as, as we, you know look back or, or reflect but then you know when when things like punk rock started to appear you know on the horizon and record companies started getting kind of excited with this new wave of people how did that affect you as an artist and a, as a band seeing like wow we've been doing this now for not quite 10 years but quite a bit of time well nearly 10 years and then suddenly this this kind of new musical landscape has kind of changed again i thought it was wonderful when it came out I loved the De Sex Pistols album. I played at number 10 on my record player as, as loud as I could get it. Luckily, I was living in a, in a in a cottage outside a church on one side and a farmhouse on the other and nothing else within sight. And so I could play it as loud as I wanted. And I thought it was a wonderful record. And got and I thought the whole you know, we're we are becoming too convoluted in what we're doing. And it certainly adjusted my field to playing music. At that time, we recorded an album called Heartbreak Hill, which uh, we did in the studio, finished it, and then the management called me in and said, uh, we've decided that we're withdrawing support of the band. Um, and I, I said, what do you mean? They said, we're winding the band up. And I said, you can't, it's my band. They said, well, we're drawing support. We're not paying the wages anymore. We were getting 70 quid a week at the time. That was all the band was ever, ever earned. And they said, we were withdrawing support. And I said, well, what about the album we finished? They said, oh, forget it. So they didn't pay the bill on the studio costs. So the album, the tapes in the studio, were left in the studio, Strawberry South, for years and years. And by luck, I managed to get hold of the master tapes in the end. And uh, they brought the record out. Wow. And, 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 but it has got those jagged riffs on it, which I it brought in from the if you like the punk experience. Yeah. And so yeah. it it did have an influence on me. Because when you made deadlines, is that where you met Joe Strummer in the studio at that stage? Was that your yeah. your, your moment of with Joe? What was that like meeting this kind of? Uh, you know? But they were very very nice guys. They were. We were in the studio in. Uh, oh, Utopia, wasn't it? Yeah, Utopia. Yeah, I was trying to. It's in Mus, not Muswell Hill. Uh, anyway. But, 
Anyway, you can look it up and find out where it was. But it had two studios side by side. And we were mixing uh, the Deadlines album. And I can't remember which album they were doing. But Nick, the, the, the drummer, drove his, rode his motorbike in one night into the studio and smashed all the potted palms. So I went in there and was very nice. I said, I don't think that was a good idea. Can we give us a hand to clear it up? And so we cleared it up. And then we, they would come in to listen to our tracks, and I'd go in and listen to theirs, and we became really very friendly. Yes. And the next time I saw them was when Bob Dylan played at Blackbush, and I went backstage, and there were the Clash sitting in the CBS tent with spliffs about two feet long, no, 12 inches long, saying, and all going, come on, over here, Dave. Oh, come here, over. And the CBS management were going, what the hell is Dave Cousins doing with the Clash? But they were, all, they were the loveliest blokes I've, I've met. Yes, absolutely. I think Joe was in the 101 as wasn't he? And he'd, he'd been in the sort of London scene for a long time. He was, yeah. yeah, that was quite good. I mean, one thing I did notice with a lot of artists that, Kind of, and I don't know if it's you know if it's just kind of exhaustion or decades changing, but you know when the eighties appeared, you know seventy nine Thatcher gets in, then we have the Falkland War, the Miners' Crisis, Greenham Common, the eighty, the early eighties. Is that kind of a period where you need to take stock, you know, and and slightly in the early eighties, that was when the band, the management wound the band up. I took twenty years sabbatical because I went into the radio business. I, I decided I'd had enough, completely enough of it. I'd written the winning application for the West Country license for Devonair Radio. I did all the research for it. And because I was a, had my broadcasting experience at, at making the Danish radio shows, I wrote the program uh, notes for it or the program application. We won the license. And the chairman said, There's no job for you, David. Um, go, you, you, you go away and be a DJ or something. So I applied for a job at Radio Tees in Stockton on Tees as program controller. And much of everybody's amazement got the job. And suddenly I went from being a rock singer. And six months later, I was the program controller of Radio Tees. And I did that for three years. I then went down to Devonair Radio became managing director down there, sold the station to Capital Radio, became a senior executive of the Capital Radio Group, and then um, left there and became the special projects director for uh, well, Atlantic 252, or CLT as the company in the UK, which was the biggest broadcaster in Europe, RTL. Wow. And, I did that, and I did that. I wrote the winning application for XFM, and invented the slogan, uh, which was rock music. No, guitar-led music with attitude. That was, and I wrote all of that application document. Amazing. That is fantastic. And then... So, was, nobody knows that I did all this. <laughs> <laughs> so I took 20 years off. In the, in the years up to 1980, between 1965 and 80, I wrote about 200 and 250 songs. In that 20-year period, I wrote 13 songs. That was all I wrote because I had no outlet for them. I had nothing to write for. And it was only when I started, I left the radio business in 2002 because it was becoming, when the amalgamations all started and, the, and I knew that the, the local radio that I knew and loved was going to change hands, which it has done. It's unrecognisable now. Yeah. So I left that. And I thought I'd made quite a bit of money out of the radio business. And I thought, well, I'll just go back and play in the old folk club here and there. So I went out with Brian Willoughby and played in, in it. Uh, the audience, I sprained my wrist after the first night and I couldn't play again. So Brian said, well, let's get Dave Lambert back. Dave Lambert came back in. And there we are. I've got another career, a third career now, with the Straubs having lasted from up to from... 69 when we first recorded to 1980 and then from 2002 to now right because so, so there's got... this huge gap in the middle and people <laughs> don't realize that nothing happened no absolutely that was it. i that did was... go to america on my summer holidays and do a two-week tour every year just right and just rob for fun Yes. And I, I did make a couple of records in the, the second year, but they were done very much 
at weekends just for, for fun again. Yeah, and I mean, I remember we watched um, the return of the Magnificent Seven. When did you decide that you know to bring the band back together again? Did, was there a kind of a particular point or a phone call or a meeting that you you sort of called up a few people and well, said? No, we we started out as an acoustic trio when we started out again, and we did that for a while, and then we got booked for the oh for Cropperly, I think. Uh, for the Fairport Festival, and I thought we'd better get the band together. So we, we got the band back together with Rod Coombs on drums and John Hawkin on keyboards, and we did the Crop Ready Festival, and then we, I carried on from there. Yes, blimey, that is good. But then you've released the you know the solo albums and some Straub's albums. Again, how does that one particularly, you know, where does one start and one finish? Or... Well, what I started was in 2002, uh, we went to did a few folk clubs and was so uh, people wanted to buy records, so I thought we'd better make an album. And so we made an album called Acoustic Straws Baroque and Roll, and we made that. And then I thought, well, let's start a little record company. So we started Witchwood Records, and we sold over the period from two thousand and four till about six years ago. We sold 150,000 albums just doing it from my back bedroom. <laughs> I know, cottage industry, it's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, do people, people are quite precious, aren't they, about the straws? I have noticed one, one or two moments on social oh, yeah. media. <laughs> oh, you, you spotted, oh, yeah. Do you, do you have to just kind of block all that kind of stuff and things? I, I very rarely respond. I try, I do correct every now and then when, yes. when somebody says something out of the way. But it's it's people have said this is the end of the straws. I I haven't said it's the end of the straws. Who said it's the end? Of, you know, the, the thing is, I we <laughs> we made an album uh, with uh, what what the tragedy was that we were making albums with Chris Tangaridis as producer, and he died, and so I had to get another producer in. So I went back and got Blue in. And he produced the album Settlement. And it went in the charts at number three in the progressive album charts, which I was delighted with, and number two in the folk charts. And I thought, crikey, that's not bad. Mm. <laughs> After all these years, 50 years later, that's not too That's quite good. And that was when we sold the record company to Cherry Red. So we had them promoting it, whereas I used to do it all myself before that. And it was a weight off my shoulders not to have to do it. Yes. So that, so that's why we sold more records. And with this new album, it came about that we wanted to do a documentary about it. So I wanted to make an album with a documentary. And But people said, oh, this is the end of Straubs. I haven't said it's the end of Straubs. Right. I'm carrying on making records because it's in my blood. Unfortunately, I can't go out and play anymore because I have to maintain the social distance. It's like being in COVID, this disease, because I can't, I can't mix in public in crowded mm. places. I'm doing property, but it, I've, made, I've made it absolutely clear. At backstage, I'll be wearing a mask all the time. I've bought my own mic so I can put that up and I don't have to touch anything. They're going to have a little group around me so that nobody can get near me. I'm not being pretentious in any way. It's not as though I'm, I'm being Elvis backstage. It's, <laughs> it, I, I, if I get, if I literally get an infection, I have to go to hospital. Yes. Well, no, that's, that's it is. It is on my medical notes. Uh, Mr. Cousins is advised that if he gets any kind of infection, he must report immediately to hospital. Yes. And that means going to A and E. And it came out. Uh, when I first was diagnosed with the disease, it's not. It's a. It's a, it's a condition. Mm. If you like, a condition. I had a kidney infection, and I phoned my my GP and said, "Can you give me some biot antibiotics, please?" I because I've I've only got one kidney working. I have a stent change all the time, and, and I get kidney infections. Mm. So I know exactly what's wrong with me from that point of view. Can I have some antibiotics? Literally, within half an hour, outside the house here, there was an ambulance to take me to hospital. It is that severe. Yeah. So I can't. I, I don't go in crowded pubs. If I go in a pub, I go in the garden, and I can sit outside. 
If I go in a pub, I look inside first and see if there's anybody in there. If there's nobody in there, I'll go in there. I can go and sit by the bar. That's fine. But if people come in, then I walk straight out and I'll, I'll go and sit outside. Yes. But I have to be like that. I have to have, I have to be, I have to keep my distance. I can't shake hands with people because I might catch something from them. Yes, absolutely. No, my God. I mean, you know, hospitals are quite something, aren't they? An illness. It's that, that, that. It's very difficult to explain that to people, and that's why there's been all this kerfuffle on 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 Facebook. Yes, people but, can't understand it. No, it's just you know, that's just rude, and they just don't they don't listen enough. But just so the the concert or concerts that you've got August twenty twenty three. These these definitely will be the last that's time. It. You, that's it. These will be my last time play, play. Last time I can play on stage. Yes. There being the, the rehearsals, I, I did the vocals for this new album in a studio very close to here, and the, it's got a room which I shall be in, uh, which is just a vocal booth, but it's got windows that open, and I shall wear a mask when I'm going around the studio. The band will be in the other room. Then there's the control room in the middle, and the room where the band will be is at the far end. So the rehearsals are socially distanced. I need two gigs down in trading boundaries. I've already advised, we've worked it out that the, the, the windows and doors will be open uh, all the time, all the through the show, throughout the show. So there's ventilation in the room. Yes. And it showed that we're doing at Folkestone, which is about five minutes from the house here. I've been up there, and they're going to open the back doors of the theatre, the stage doors, and need them open throughout the whole performance so there's mm. ventilation. Wow. And being incredibly cautious in doing it. Yeah, no, absolutely. With the band, who is John going to be coming from the... John uh, Ford, yeah, he arrives on Monday. Gosh, this is very exciting, isn't it? Who's arriving from Germany? He lives in in Germany. Uh, the three South Africans, one of them's here already, and the other two arrive on Monday. And then yeah. Brian Willoughby and his wife are driving, have driven, well, they're all already here in England. They've driven from Northern Ireland. And so it's a meeting of, of people. They've all, when I was in South Africa, by the way, doing the documentary, part of the documentary was Blue and I playing on stage with the musicians over there. Mm. And we did a one show. And we sold that out, and there was about well, 150 people in a small club. But it was uh, the reaction again was unbelievable, and people have travelled three thousand miles to come to it. It's extraordinary. Yes. But, and I had one afternoon's rehearsals with the musicians, with Skulk and Morris and and Kevin, and ran through the songs with my guitar, and they were playing along to it. And then when we got on stage, they were note perfect. Fantastic. That is going to be such an emotional moment, isn't it, actually? I'm trying to avoid that. I try to avoid it, but... Um... Uh, it'll be... It, it's, I want it... I don't... I always said, if it's not fun, I don't want to do it. Yes. And every show I've always done, I've tried to make fun. You know, enjoy... I've got to want to enjoy it. If I don't enjoy it, I really don't want to do it. And having to go, to go through this... Um, um, but I, I just can't do shows anymore where I have to, you know, be conscious of this. It's better to say that's it and leave it on a high. Yes, absolutely. It's going to be quite a high. And do you have in the back of your mind any more kind of recording projects or songs? Yes. That... Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm talking to a very well-known drummer who, who I won't talk about. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. And he wants to record with me, which is very exciting. And I, I, I've already begun to write a few, not write the songs yet, but they're, they're already in a fragment stage. Yes. But it'll be, again, it'll change, but I don't know until I get going on it. Yeah, absolutely. Is it the case then that Cherry Red Records owns your archive and, and your kind of... No, Cherry Red Records bought, uh, acquired... The archive of Witchwood Records. Right. Uh, any other material which I have, they don't own. Right. That's, 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 when, that's, you know, they don't own, for example, the 40th anniversary material or the 50th anniversary material. They acquired the catalogue of Witchwood Records. Mm -hmm. Was that a good thing? 
I paid a lot of money for it. That's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't give it to them. No, God, no. But, you know, luckily... No, no, no. And and they've remastered the albums, put them out, repackaged them, and they've done a very good job. Yes. And I, I... because my deteriorate, my health has deteriorated, and in the, people aren't aware of it. But in the last three years, I've had a new knee, a replacement knee surgery. I've had bowel cancer. I had an operation for that, where a resection, so I didn't have a stoma bag. And that uh, I, the operation lasted six and a half hours for that, mm. and so I was very ill for a year after that. That's why I started to cancel shows 18 months ago. I had to. I just couldn't do them anymore. Yes, absolutely. So doing these shows, I've had to do vocal exercises every day for the last two months, and I've had to learn the songs. Yes, yes, I know. And I guess, you know, you've got, you know, only 50-plus years of uh, different material. Is it hard to put a set list together, or is it quite obvious what, you know, you've got? No, it's wrote itself. It's right as well. Oh, nice. So is it... This is a a retrospective look at Straub's. Yes. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be good. There's going to be some interesting songs on it. I I won't give it away yet, but the people will start posting what was on it the minute we do one show down at, you know, the warm-up shows. Yeah. I hope they... I wish they wouldn't, but anyway, they will. Nice, nice. We'll, we'll go right back to the very beginning. Nice. And songs is, early on and go, work our way through. And who's, yeah, and yes, producers. You've had a huge amount of producers. I mean, do you have anybody, you mentioned a drummer. Is there anybody else that you're quite curious or keen to play with in the future? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about people. I, I I don't know yet. I can't, can't, can't say yet. Yes. This is it, it'll come. It will all happen. Well, look, David, thank you ever so much. I mean, I've loved the album. I've loved your lyrics. They're just gorgeous. And I have to say this new album is both, you know, is you know, it's it's also, I mean, there's a lot of personal stuff, but there's also stuff around the world, the planet, you know, environmental, temperate, climate change. We can well, say climate. Our, our world, for example, climate change, you've got it all around you. You know, Spain and the, the, the islands are, are burning. Fires breaking out. It's been well. It's, it's sunny out here now at the moment, but it's been raining for 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 days now, and it looks like it's going to be raining for the next couple of weeks. And they the, the, can't predict the weather anymore. There are population shifts going on because water is drying up in the hot countries, and people are moving away to find water. In fact, one of my great achievements recently was writing a song called "The Water Song." I don't know if you're aware of that. Yes, this is. Um, it, it was written by a fifteen-year-old schoolgirl in South Africa, and I, I, she's uh, my partner's granddaughter, and I wanted. Um, I'm a trustee of the Commonwealth Medical Trust, and we're we're putting water tanks into remote villages in Uganda, and we're raising money now to put uh, water tanks into a hospital in Uganda where. Women have got no fresh water when they're delivering children. So mm. we're, we're doing that from here remotely. But I wanted a song called, well, Marianne wanted a song called The Water Song. And I was proud as punch in, I think it was February this year, when that song was played at the United Nations Water Conference in the General Assembly. And the, the delegates, you know, who were used to listening to people just standing up and making speeches, the Minister for Water and Sanitation, the South African Minister for Water and Sanitation, played a video of these school children singing a song that I've written, which was a huge, huge achievement. Yeah, it's, it's probably um, one of your musical highlights. Actually. Well, we're now talking to the uh, United Nations singers again who want to sing a song. I'm not sure what it is yet. They've said they want to do a song. So we shall see what the next what, what's in the future there. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. Well, look, good luck all, you know, for all your uh, live dates in uh, for August. And um, yes, and, and good luck with the album and 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 your future next projects. Which well, thank good. you for your kind words about the album. 
yeah, it's magic. It's magic and lovely to hear. And um, yes, hopefully it's got, get... it's got it's lovely as I say. It it it's open. Blue deliberately made it open. The sound mixing, he kept it so you could hear the countings, you could hear the the clicks, you could hear everything. He wanted it to be live, and getting I think it comes across beautifully like that. Yes, like the um, yeah, you got to have. I'm not talking about good old days, but you know, it's nice to have people in the studio again and hearing the bits and pieces that go on. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's good. But look, have a lovely afternoon and evening, and best of luck for next. Thank you very much indeed. Next month, but take care it's of yourself. Pleasure. It's lovely. Take care. Bye bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to David Cousins for giving me the time. The Straubs, which is, um, as we were talking about, I'm sure you know now, the album has just come out, The Magic of It All, Cherry Red Records, and I do believe they have a lot of their back catalogue on that same label, which is all beautifully packaged, I'm sure. Um, this has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy, please. And also, I've done all these interviews, lots of them. You can find more on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show, and they will appear. That's just the magic of life. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.